Hey, everybody, and welcome to Views on View. Today in our panel, we have Ben Hong, MC, speaker, and uh, lots of other things. I uh, also, also working at, at GitLab. Hey, everybody. And that's it for our panel. Uh, my name is Chris Fritz, uh, ViewCore team member. And today our guest is Miriam Suzanne. Hi, everybody. Hey, folks, I just want to let you know quickly about Netlify. Netlify is a really cool system for hosting what are traditionally known as static sites. However, the real benefit that I've been finding is that I don't have to mess with a back end. I can just set things up. I build the website out. I've been using a system called 11DJS and you just deploy it. And then anything that you have that you want to do, you can do on the front end. So if you want to pull in some kind of database with Firebase or something else, if you want to collect form data, Netlify provides all kinds of services that make it easy to do all that stuff. If you're trying to do serverless, they have a really, really neat serverless setup that will allow you to deploy your websites without having to deploy a backend and it'll do some of the work for you. I just, I just love it. So if you're looking for a way that you can actually deploy a website that only has front-end technology in it, gives you all the tools that you typically need for the back-end without having to actually program the back-end, then give them a try. Go check them out at netlify.com. Would you like to introduce yourself, Miriam? Sure. I'm one of the founders of Oddbird. Uh, we're a small agency doing full-stack work, also refactors, design systems, anything like that. We've got a team of seven, and we go where clients need us. And I do project management and also some UX and a lot of CSS and design system work. And not too long ago, you you did a, a talk on basically CSS and JS like within Vue applications, right? At, at ViewConf US? Yeah, I wouldn't use the phrase CSS and JS because that phrase has come to mean something a little different. Yeah, yeah, I guess like but, or CSS, CSS within view components, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I enjoy combining CSS and JavaScript, but not in the ways other, people's are, other people are doing it. Yeah, yeah, I, I know exactly what you mean. And I, I'd love to talk about that a little bit more later. But, uh, but first, like one of the things like I think of when I think Miriam Suzanne is like master of design systems. Oh, wow. So Is that because it's the first talk I gave at ViewConf? <laughs> it's the first talk you gave, it, it, because it's like, it's been like half of our conversations. Right, sure. <laughs> so that's one of the reasons for me, that, yeah. that's what stands out. I mean, but would you disagree? Do you not think about design systems a lot? Yeah, I do. And I think I was thinking about design tooling at the point where design systems became a popular phrase. And I would say I wasn't exactly at the center of the people defining the term design systems, but I was, I was right there doing the work already. Um, yeah. And so it immediately was like, oh, I need to attach myself to these people and keep doing that work, which has been fun. Yeah, I think, I, I think a lot about design systems just because I do UX engineering and what is UX engineering besides building systems for design? So, so what are, for people who might not be familiar, what are design systems and design tooling? Is there a difference or? Yeah, well, I think design systems has become the overarching phrase that we use to talk about lots of different types of design tooling and documentation. So people have talked about style guides, which might be anything from like, these are the colors we use to this is what a button looks like. This is what a larger component looks like. Style guides sort of have a broad range themselves. They can also include tone, tone of voice, 
writing guides, uh, all sorts of things. And then we've had component libraries, which sort of supply components to various products, right? So putting those two pieces together and saying, well, these are actually part of the same thing. These are part of a larger system of designing and building an application. Let's put them under one umbrella and call that design system. So I think there's a lot in there, ranging from documentation to actual shipped components. But it's thinking about design systemically. So what kind of problem is that solving for people? Like as a, as a view developer, like how, right. why and, and when do I care? When do I care about design systems or design tooling? Yeah, yeah. And I guess design tooling fits in there sort of as a, as a middle layer in my mind of like, how do, we, how do we actually organize the code? How do we actually manage the code in ways that encourage documentation and encourage system thinking? But then to get to what problem it solves, I would say there's, there's a few. One is basic communication between a team, right? If we're trying to design a consistent brand of any kind, consistency requires communication. If a pattern isn't communicated to people, it doesn't exist. Within three days, uh, that pattern is gone because it wasn't communicated and somebody broke it. So that's sort of one level. Can we make sure everybody on the team is on the same page? Mm. Another piece is that if we can... So, so to, to interrupt you real yeah. quick, just make sure I'm understanding. So like I've, I've had a lot of cases where like I've been working with a designer or something and, and a designer gives me like a bunch of different mockups and in like the, the grid spacing. You know, sometimes it'll be like, 20 pixels, sometimes it'll be like 23 pixels, uh, yeah. sometimes it'll be 27 pixels for things that like seem like they're, they're roughly the same. But then, uh, you know, if you're implementing that exactly from the mockup, like a lot of developers right. might be tempted to just like add a bunch of exceptions. So like right. for this table right here, we have a slightly different spacing. And for, you know, this row of uh, whatever is, you know, we have like a slightly different kind of spacing. We just have like so, so many CSS overrides that lead to inconsistency where it just kind of looks like a a little bit like disorganized, maybe in a way that you can't exactly put your finger on. Right. So part of that then is agreeing on a standard way of doing things. So our gutters are all going to be, let's say, 1M or 1REM or whatever, or multiples of that you know, there's different ways we can define a system either very narrowly or sort of with, you know, ways to extend it, standard ways of extending the system. But then if we can communicate those and stick to them, part of also what we get to is a point where on our projects, our designer does some high fidelity mockups maybe near the beginning of a project, but that stops as soon as we have much of a design system in place she'll start giving me napkin sketches that just say, you know what a gutter is, put it here. Mm-hmm. You know what a heading is, put it here. And she doesn't have to spend a lot of time fleshing out those details in something that's going to be redlined. And then I'm going to have to look at each piece and figure out, is this 23 pixels or 25 pixels? I just say, oh, that's roughly one of our spacing units. Um, yeah. Or over here, I need two spacing units. Great. So it really speeds up our communication in that sense. Got it. So the the designer doesn't have to try to like recreate exactly how that button is going to look, and you know, exactly. trying to get the font size exactly right with like the the REM context and yeah. 
Right. And then also that means if she thinks we need to make a change across the site, she can say, okay, change our buttons from having a padding of uh, the one spacing unit to a padding of half a spacing unit. We want to make all of our buttons a little smaller or we're going to add a new small button component uh, or variant of a component and it should use these values instead. So we can very quickly sort of add and remove and change at a higher level of abstraction and see that trickle down through the system. Part of that question of abstraction, I think it's something that we deal with a lot in finding architectures of any kind in code. Mm -hmm. It's like what level of abstraction is the right one? And to me, it's often about putting every layer in there or a reasonable number of layers of abstraction in place so that I know for every change I make, I can go to the right layer to make that change. So if we're changing the brand color, I can make Mm -hmm. that at a very high level of abstraction. I can change our brand color to a slightly darker blue. But if we're changing borders across the site, I can change that at some sort of theme layer. But if we're changing the border on a particular element, I can change that at the element layer. So I have these various layers of abstraction in place. Does that make sense? So so when you have like a... When you have like uh, buttons, you might have like different kinds of buttons for different contexts. Like, you know, there might be like buttons that are like a call to action um, or or buttons that, you know, are for, you know, maybe specific actions like search. And if you have like two buttons, like, you know, this search button is blue and this search button is orange, sort Mm -hmm. of defining the rules of like, okay, when is a button blue and when is a button orange? And why are these search buttons different colors? Right, right. And then being able to name those things and describe why and when so that everybody understands what that pattern is. Got it. And then also having that component library aspect of it where you can actually just grab the component and use it. And it's going to be built the same every time you maybe pass in a few arguments to get slight variations on it. But so I pass in like it's already built for you. Like I might pass in like button and then like context search or something like that with like yeah, a, an argument. Or, yeah. Or button danger. Got it. And then we give you the red one instead of the blue one. Got it. So do not search. Or yeah, maybe this <laughs> maybe this will like delete your profile or something yeah, like that. Exactly yeah. Right. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. So it's something that the user like might not be able to take back. And and you just, just define like for any kind of actions like that, you use this kind of button. Right. Right. Um, cool. Yeah. And then by by abstracting those things out, narrowing down the number of arguments they can take, you can do a lot of things like make sure accessibility is baked in, you know, make the component smart about what accessibility it needs, make sure you're asking for alt tags mm-hmm. if you need them, like make that a required argument to the component so you can you can start to build in best practices into your system and that's sort of where the tooling becomes interesting to me how do we make tools that will enforce best practice or encourage best practice in some way while allowing you the flexibility to design something interesting and unique yeah i like that and so you talked about like tooling to make these design systems easier and it sounds like you know, components themselves can be part of the design systems, like view components. Yeah. Like what, what are other tools that you find yourself using to make design systems easier, to, to make like having those conversations and sort of like turning the results of those conversations into code? <laughs> right. So style guide generators are a big one. 
being able to have documentation, especially that can be automated out of the code. You look at things like Storybook, or uh, we have a tool called Herman, and they all take slightly different approaches. And I haven't found one that uh, does it perfectly in my mind. I think tools like Storybook do a great job with taking the JavaScript component aspects, rendering them, and even giving you access to play with, uh, I think they call them knobs, play with the arguments, put in different arguments, see how the component changes. That's very cool. Herman, our tool is more CSS style-based and is the only one that I've seen that really allows you to write structured SAS and CSS styles and then automate a lot of design token documentation. Design tokens, that's a term that uh, Gina coined while working on the Salesforce Lightning Design System. But it's this idea of of abstractions that don't exist in a physical way on your site, um, but can be used. Colors, fonts, sizes, these sort of abstract uh, concepts that we then use throughout the site on various components. So I think there are some tools out there that do a really great job documenting the component side. And our tool does a great job documenting the CSS token side. And that's built around a lot of tooling for how do you create uh, structured SaaS that's meaningful to a machine, can be automated, can generate a style guide directly from it. So I think those are the main tools that come into play. And I would love to see something that combines them, that gives us both that SaaS-driven token documentation and also uh, JavaScript-driven component documentation. Okay. And when you talk about the component documentation, it's like a, a list of components that you can like click on to see like examples of those components and like you can see what the props that it takes are and like what how how it acts differently and looks exactly. differently depending on can, like which props you pass. And then you can add some pros around it to describe like why is this here, guides for how to use it. Um, mm. Yeah. You know, to explain, for example, that with like the button type danger, like you you use this whenever you you have something that the user like there's an action that the user might not be able to take back. Right. Exactly. Got it. That makes a lot of sense. And then you talked about that other kind of documentation. Which other kind? The the, uh, the token token documentation. Yeah, the yeah. token documentation. So what does that look like? So we have a lot of tools for encouraging our SaaS developers, our, our SaaS and CSS developers to store colors and sizes and things like that in SAS maps. A SAS map is an object, uh, like an object in JavaScript, key value pairs. And by putting all of our tokens into those SAS maps, we have them in a structured and grouped system uh, where we also have ways of showing relationships between colors. So the border color is our brand color darkened and desaturated, right? Uh, we can keep those relationships intact in the SAS map. And then Herman is able to automatically run through that SAS and generate a full color palette based on all the colors in the map. And the way we've set it up, it's the easiest way to add a new color to the site is to put it in that map and then reference it from there. And that means immediately, as soon as you add a new color to the site, it appears on the style guide. It's part of the design system. And you can quickly go look at that color palette 
And the designer will look at it to say, okay, what colors am I using? What colors do I want to reference? But we'll also look at it sometimes and say, are there too many blues that are too similar? Did somebody add a blue that was too close to another one? Then can we can we simplify? Can we bring that? Do back? we need that many blues? Exactly. Yeah. And, and what's wrong with having too many blues? Just having like just playing devil's advocate. What happens? <laughs> nothing, nothing specific. I mean, it's all a balance. I think there is a danger in design systems to think that narrower is always better. I don't think that's the case. I think it's always it's always a give and take. But the more you have, the less consistent your system is in some ways. And the fewer you have, the less creativity your system allows. Um, yeah. Sort of a balance that you have to find in between there of where do we have enough colors to really so, do what we want to do, but not too many. So if everything's just the same color, I mean, obviously you're looking at a blank right. screen. That's not enough. <laughs> <laughs> right. So you want at least two and, colors. <laughs> yeah, you want at least two colors. And if you just have two, like, and, and everything is the same size, it might be like a little bit hard to... Like, and everything is the same weight and everything like that. You know, difficult to establish hierarchy. There's interesting things you can do with that. I remember this was probably eight years ago. I think it was maybe Cameron Mall had a site where he restricted font sizes. He was only going to use one font size. And it was a very cool website. And that restriction forced him to play with color and font in other ways to create hierarchies. So there's fun things you can do by limiting something to an extreme. Monochrome sites are fun. You can do something fun with them. And so in that case, was he using like weight more to establish hierarchy rather than size? Yeah, I think weight and italics and, and colors. And maybe some underlines or something like that. Yeah. And maybe changing which font he was using sometimes. I don't mm-hmm. remember exactly. I'd love to go back and find that site. I, I was inspired by the idea. Of oh, if you're using different fonts. And that, that's starting to cheat a little bit because some fonts <laughs> are just going to be bigger than others. Uh-huh. <laughs> I don't remember if he limited the font or not. I'm not sure. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but I don't think, I mean, in a lot of these cases, there's not a right answer. There's just sort of defining what your brand is and what your system is going to be and finding something that helps you design quickly and consistently uh, yeah. without getting in your way. And that's always what tests well with users. Exactly. So a lot of our tooling, you know, it starts out a little too extreme and parts of it get in our way. And then we take those parts out. And that's how I think of like over-engineering is part of the process. Uh, You over-engineer things to find out what's too far. And then you just pull back where it's getting in the way instead of helping. Yeah. And I've I've been on sites uh, and I've... I'm sure I've like built sites with just way too many colors and uh, <laughs> way too many font sizes and things like that. And it just feels like really busy. Yeah. You know, yeah. where there's nothing like specifically that you can point to that's wrong, but it's just, it feels kind of like overwhelming for your eyes. Right. And having that, that system that puts all of your colors in one place where you can see when you're starting to get a lot of them is just another way of looking at it and being like, oh, do I, how many do I have? Are all of these needed? Having them all in one place helps you track that down and just keep track of it and make your own decisions more clearly. Got it. I'm kind of curious. Is there a mistake that you see people make in design systems or, or you know, several mistakes? You're, you're allowed to list as many as you want that, that are very common. <laughs> well, I mean, I would say there's a few top ones that bug me, but... I want to hear them. I would say they're, they're, they're always trade-offs. It's hard to point at like, this is always a mistake and it's more like... Mm-hmm. 
I'm bothered that everybody goes with that side of the trade-off. Got it. So one would be that people focus way more on the tools and, and style guide generators for the component side. I see much less work on how do you document and tool CSS and SAS correctly to keep those abstract tokens organized. And it bothers me that there's so much focus on the JavaScript side and so little focus on the CSS side. Maybe that's because I'm a CSS developer. But I think for a design system, if you can't uh, document your design tokens, you, you're not documenting your design system. They're part of yeah. it. The other that I think is related to that is a lot of these tools store their design tokens in a language like JSON or YAML. Uh, and to me, there's a type problem. People are obsessed with types in JavaScript. I mean, it's why we use TypeScript or Flow or whatever. Um, mm-hmm. But I don't see the same focus on style-specific types. JSON and YAML do not support a length. They don't support inches or pixels or Ms or rems. Those are just turned into strings and they don't know how to manipulate those strings in meaningful ways, uh, you lose that whole length type. Similarly, colors, SAS and CSS understand colors. They can translate between a RGB color and an HSL color and a hex color. Uh, they know what those are. They can manipulate them. And that's just not true in, again, YAML or JSON or JavaScript. So when we start putting all of our design tokens into these other languages that aren't actually built for design and don't actually understand design types, mm-hmm. we lose a lot of that power of typing that we otherwise give so much uh, attention to. So, so for example, like uh, SAS and CSS itself can like make certain calculations, you know, when it knows the types that it's working with. It's like, okay, we want you know, this many REMs and uh, we want this to be like 130% the size of this other thing. Right, yeah. You know, so that you're maintaining that, that ratio. Mm-hmm. But when you're just working with YAML or just working with JSON, everything's static. So you just have to put in those static values. Right. You can't do uh, the calculation. So most of the tools will provide some sort of uh, basic interpolation of strings. So you can say use my base is 16 and then add pixels to it over here uh, Mm -hmm. because it's just basic string interpolation. But you can't do add 16 pixels to 24 pixels and get a result, which seems absurd to me. That's basic design is being able to add those things together and multiply them and whatever else we need to do. So, um, And and SAS goes farther and is able to convert between inches and pixels because it understands how they relate. And there are yeah, two different fine. ways I commonly see this problem solved, you know, either with a preprocessor like SAS mm-hmm. or with, you know, what we were alluding to earlier, like CSS and JS, where like they're also importing certain libraries to, you know, transparentize colors and, uh, you know, also like uh, change you know, do do some more math with with sizes and stuff like mm-hmm. that, uh, and normalizing like rems and pixels and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. what are the trade offs there? 
the trade-offs, I mean, I imagine there's some advantage to people who just like to stay in their JavaScript and never leave it. And that that's part of the consideration people are making. That trade-off has no advantages for me. Um, so I have a hard time talking about it. <laughs> um, <laughs> I would say... What are the advantages that other people seem to have? Or, or do you think there are just none other than familiarity? I mean, it seems to me that familiarity is a big one. And there's some sense of keeping the component intact in a single file, which I think the reason I was attracted to Vue is because Vue doesn't make me choose between those. Mm -hmm. I can put everything in a single file and I can still use a style language. I think, you know, the reason Salesforce went with YAML instead of CSS or SAS is because they're shipping to people using any sort of different stack. And they're shipping to not only the web, but also native languages and languages that don't use SAS or CSS as their baseline. So I can see why you would be attracted to a language that is more widely known by developers, not just, uh, I mean, developers who are even using different style languages than CSS, because uh, you're not just on the open web. So that might be a reason to push that direction. I think too often we assume that because a big company did it, uh, that means it's right for everyone. Mm -hmm. uh, and I don't think that's true. Salesforce has their own constraints and I don't have those constraints on most of my projects. That's a great point. Yeah. So what are some of the disadvantages of like doing something like CSS and JS? Are, 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 there, are there some? I think so. I think a lot of the CSS and JS tools uh, think of the cascade as a problem. I think one of the big mental model pieces that's missing is this idea that CSS is really designed to create styles for an unknown, infinite, always changing interactive canvas, right? We have no idea what canvas we're going to display on. And somehow we're still going to provide a layout and a design system. I think that's like fundamentally audacious that CSS is a language that can do that. And it's something that other programming languages often don't have to do because if you're writing for any native system, you know much more about the canvas. You know what's supported. You can design for a known space. And CSS is fundamentally trying to do something radically different there of giving the control over to the client. Some of that control goes to the user. Some of that control goes to the browser. Uh, some of it to the operating system. And in that paradigm, the browser is the only part of the system that has all of the, all of the information. The browser knows what language it's dealing with. It knows what operating system it's dealing with. It knows uh, the size of the window. It knows all of these different things. It knows the content and it knows what suggestions you've made for the layout. And the browser is the only part of the system that can put it all together. So when we're designing in CSS, we are explicitly giving up control to the browser and saying, there are too many variables for me to consider. I'm going to write some declarative rules that give you meaningful semantic information about how to handle these things. And if it doesn't work, fall back to something smart. And then the browser has all these ways of falling back to something smart. And when we move all of that logic into a programmatic system, not declarative anymore, uh, we're trying to take back that control and rethink all of the all of the implications on our own. 
And I think there's a danger there of going too far, thinking that by pulling it into JavaScript, we get more control. And I don't think we do because it's the web and it's the open web. And that's, it's meant to be user controlled in that way. Was that a long ramble? Did that make any sense? I thought that was a fantastic perspective on it. Yeah, I, I often feel like CSS and JS solutions are, are sort of reinventing the wheel. It's like, don't we already have tools that do exactly yeah. this and mm-hmm. don't have the same limitations? Right, exactly. And a lot of them are trying to work around or avoid the cascade. Uh, mm-hmm. And I think from the mental model of smart fallbacks in an unknown system, the cascade makes beautiful sense and is very powerful and useful. Uh, cascade becomes problematic when we think we're going to control everything. So that uh, in, that. the cascade, you mean like a set of rules with different like specificity. Mm-hmm. So for example, you know, you want this button to like look a little bit different or like you want it to look a certain way. And then when it hovers, when it's hovered over, there should be like styles with a little bit higher specificity that right. override its normal like look and feel. Style specificity is one big part of the cascade. The cascade generally is all of the rules for handling conflicts in settings, uh, in information that the browser gets. Mm-hmm. So the browser mm-hmm. is getting settings from, from your CSS, which has all these specificity rules. Uh, mm-hmm. It's also getting browser defaults. It's also getting user settings. It's also getting language settings, all sorts of other things. Yeah. Uh, and the cascade is how do we pull all that together in what order and resolve the conflicts. Uh, and it's a pretty yeah. smart system. Sh- shouldn't we just use like a CSS reset or something like that uh, to control <laughs> that? Uh, no. No, why, why uh, not? Well, so there's a mix, right? The browser is pretty smart about some of the defaults. Some of them make a lot of sense. They're based around accessibility, usability, all sorts of things uh, that we don't want to break. There are other things that are defaults because that's the way Mosaic did it. And that's not really relevant anymore. How Mosaic did it is not a guiding principle on the web these days. So there is a place for normalization or resetting, but we have to be careful with it and think about what do we really want to take away from the browser and what do we want to acknowledge? That was a smart move they made by providing keyboard focus. Uh, let's and, not take away keyboard focus. Yeah, and, and, and like, so, so allowing people who use those browsers to use the features of those browsers. Right. With that, like, in still normalizing some quirks like, like Chrome's like eight pixel margin around the body, for example. Right. Which There's no it, reason for that. <laughs> which I, don't, I don't know anyone who thinks that's a good idea. <laughs> yeah, so um, Jen Simmons has started this, what is she calling it? CSS Remedy which is an attempt to rethink what browser defaults would we create now instead of either thinking like how do we reset everything or how do we normalize everything to the same, yeah. uh, thinking instead, okay, if we could redesign browser defaults, where would we start? What would it look like? Mm. Um, so is it like really a, a more conservative normalization? Well, it's conservative on some things. So it depends what you're comparing to. It's maybe more opinionated than something like normalize in terms of not just trying to get them all to look the same, but thinking through what is, what is the default we wish we had. So box sizing border box is a smarter <laughs> default than box sizing content box. Uh, so it would be more aggressive on some things like that potentially, 
than some of the other systems, but then it wouldn't take away some of the accessibility features that, say, Eric Meyer's reset would have. Yeah, I'm going to have to check that out. I, I'm not familiar with, it was called CSS... Remedy. Remedy. It's not released yet. Is that what you, oh, it's not released yet? Okay. It's, it's pre-released, but it's on GitHub. You can start jumping into the issues and helping figure out where it should go. What do you use? We have our own right now that I don't love and I don't keep up to date. Um, and so I'm trying to get involved with CSS Remedy and hope that goes a direction that I'll like. Right now, ours is based on a combination of various of the ones out there, Normalize and Sanitize and some others, picking and choosing what we think is most useful. Yeah, I, I, I use Normalize with some with some other, like base, for example, overriding box sizing for, for everything. Right. I've seen Jen Simmons write several live demos, and she always starts hers with what she calls, I mean, it's basically like, let's just get to a reasonable baseline. <laughs> and it starts with uh, body padding zero, star box sizing border box. And those are the two rules. That, like, <laughs> these are required to start anything. <laughs> yeah, you just absolutely need those. Yeah, <laughs> I agree with that. Absolutely. I'm going to have to check that out. Yeah. I'm surprised. Yeah, I, I, I guess I haven't been on Twitter very much lately. So, yeah, we'll, we'll drop it in the show notes for those listening. Great. I mean, I think the other issue that we have with any of these tools is that there's no zero specificity that we can use. So sometimes our resets get in the way and cause specificity issues. Mm -hmm. uh, and I'm really excited about, there's a new selector coming in CSS that will allow us to, I think it's the is selector, uh, is pseudo selector, um, that will allow us to create zero specificity selectors. And that will become perfect for resets. Oh, that's so amazing. Say, Ooh, I, I don't know about this either. Yeah, it's uh, it works sort of like the not selector, where it's a mm -hmm. pseudo selector that takes arguments. Yeah, but I think it's called is, and then you can say you know something that is something at zero specificity. It will put those styles in, and I think zero specificity is the right specificity for resets. Yeah, yes. Well, so we want this to be a browser default, and then we want to override it easily. So for like box sizing, for example, would you just do like star colon is star or what? To... Uh, I guess so. Yeah. I so. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not actually sure. <laughs> I'll have to look more into that. That sounds cool. Yeah. So Miriam, um, so obviously you gave a talk at theConf this year on dynamic CSS in uh, with Vue.js. Do you want to speak a little bit to that to kind of give those who didn't have a chance to check it out yet about what it was about? Yeah. So the entire concept for it came from a client project we were working on where they needed to lay out a day planner, you know, the times across one axis and categories down the other and laying out events across the timeline. Uh, and I looked at that and said, okay, that's, that looks like a grid to me. Grid has just landed in all the browsers we're supporting. We can use that. Uh, variables are also fairly well supported by the same browsers. I wonder if we can very quickly have CSS figure out the layout for us. Often I think, how much can I get the browser to do my work for me? And that's what I think is so cool about CSS is that it is all about the browser figuring it out for you. So rather right. than doing, say, absolute positioning and having JavaScript try to figure out positions of all these boxes on 
the grid, why not pass all the information along to the browser and see if it can generate a layout for me quickly. And the basic demo, I just put it together on CodePen. It took maybe half an hour to get a rough idea in place and only required like a couple lines of HTML and a couple lines of CSS where we can pass in as variables the start time and the end time, or I think we did it as start time and duration. And then we also pass in on the parent the length of our day so that they, the user could adjust that. So all the pieces that the user is adjusting, the length of the day and then the start time and end time of each, each event, we just pass that information to the browser uh, and say, create a grid that is however many minutes we need in our day. And then taking the start time and the end time, use those as grid line numbers and put the event on those grid lines. And it worked. I was surprised, (laughs) Uh, but it worked great. Um, And we started using it for other things. And I started playing around with, okay, I can create graphs the same way. I mean, it's, it's all basically just taking data giving it to the browser and saying, create a grid of this data. And that's what a bar graph is. And then I started creating plotting charts and all sorts of other things, line graphs, just sort of how can I take data, put it directly into HTML and CSS and have the browser lay it out in different ways. Very cool. So view comes into that in that view, view can easily update styles based on data in the system. So, I went and learned Vue so that I could play with this and update data and watch the styles change dynamically. And I just love that this works. Uh, another thing in, in Vue specifically is that, you know, you, you can have global styles and also mm-hmm. styles that like are scoped in some way, either using like the scoped attribute or the module attribute. Like how do your Vue applications normally look? Like are you using 100% global styles, 100% scope styles, using one of those strategies, you know, right. some mix or... So I think the, the general rule for organizing CSS is that you try to push things up the abstraction chain as much as possible. So at the top of that, we have, say, brand colors. They should be globally available and at no specificity. They don't do anything on their own, but they're globally available, right? So the way we get no specificity is with variables, where they, they just exist until we use them. And so we push everything up towards that. And then a layer down from that, we have, say, some basic layout patterns, maybe some utility classes, things that should be globally available, but do have a little bit of specificity. We sort of work our way down. And at each layer, we should have less and less code, ideally. Uh, mm-hmm. And I think of scoped style as as that bottom layer. So once we get to the style specific to a component, those will go in the single file component. But hopefully components are already quite styled just based on these global patterns we've defined. Uh, Got it. So, so a lot of like element styles, for example, mm-hmm. would be global. So like for like H1s to H6s, you know, like how, how those look and how like... Right paragraphs look and things like that and how links look like that's going to exactly. be that's going to be global and then like any you know, links or any paragraphs any headings like anywhere on your site is already going to be consistent right and you know like 
there's these patterns that people use all over for different types of components, like a card pattern or a drop-down pattern that you can sort of abstract away from a specific component and say, okay, this is mm-hmm. a globally available pattern and specific components will reference it. And that's, again, useful for how much can we turn this into a system that's globally available and how little do we have to do specific overrides for specific components. This episode is sponsored by Sentry.io. Recently, I came across a great tool for tracking and monitoring problems in my apps. Then I asked them if they wanted to sponsor the show and allow me to share my experience with you. Sentry provides a terrific interface for keeping track of what's going on with my app. It also tracks releases so I can tell if what I deployed makes things better or worse. They give you full stack traces and as much information as possible about the situation when the error occurred to help you track down the errors. Plus, one thing I love, you can customize the context provided by Sentry. So, if you're looking for specific information about the request, you can provide it. It automatically scrubs passwords and secure information, and you can customize the scrubbing as well. Finally, it has a user feedback system built in that you can use to get information from your users. Oh, and I also love that they support open source to the point where they actually open source Sentry if you want to self-host it. Use the code devchat at sentry.io to get two months free on Sentry's small plan. That's code devchat at sentry.io. So what are the, what are the times when you would use like a card class, for example, that you just like share between everything mm-hmm. rather than having like a base card component that is registered globally and, and you use that everywhere. Like what are the trade-offs for you? I might create like a, a markup component for a card. I mean, I think it, it really depends uh, on how, I'm, how the system is being built. Sometimes that will be a component, but if I want it, if I want it used across specific so I think we're using component in two different ways. There's component in the sense of like, what does view consider a component? And then, which I think is pretty broad, uh, like a card pattern might be a view component. But uh, the way I'm using the term is more like a pattern is something that can be reused for different content. And a component is something that does a specific task. So then a card wouldn't be a component in my system. It's a pattern. It's, it's sort of more reusable. Um, Got so it. you would have a, say, a drop-down pattern and then a date selector component that uses the drop-down pattern or a card component or a card pattern and then a, a specific type of data that is displayed in a card would be a component. So I make that distinction just to get these layers separated even if they're technically both components in view. Does that make sense? Got it. So, so for a date picker component, for example, does that mean you, you might have the styles for date pickers outside of the component? Well, so then I would think of what is special to this component is the date picker aspect. It might, but it will draw on outside patterns like maybe I have... Like a drop-down in the date picker? Yeah, I've got a, I've got a drop-down that the date picker then fits into. Yeah. Um, so there's sort of the global pattern that can be reused across different types of content. And mm-hmm. then there's components that can be, that, that do one thing, that have a specific, a specific type of content or data or interaction. And those things might be like global classes or global components, depending on just like how much you need. Right. So uh, something that I'm going to be reusing a lot, I'll try to push it up towards the global scope. And something mm-hmm. that is uh, very specific to one type of data or one type of view uh, will be put down into a single file component and 
potentially scoped if necessary. Got it. So then you you do sometimes use a, a scoping strategy for for at least some components. Yeah, we've used that in in view a few times. I mean, sometimes it feels like it's just because we're moving fast and uh, don't want to pay attention. And I feel yeah. <laughs> sketchy about that. Uh, uh-huh. Other times I think it's actually useful to say, no, this is, this is actually so specific to this component that there's no reason to show it to the global scope. Got it. So you, you just don't have to worry about like what you name this class right. by scoping it. You can guarantee that like, even if somewhere else we're using the same class, we won't interfere. Right. Yeah. As long as they're both scoped. Right. <laughs> And then the other thing that is really handy about CSS variables, custom properties, is that you can use them to expose some styles, even scoped styles. You can expose them to override from the outer context. Uh, You can sort of create style properties, style arguments that can be passed into the component using CSS variables. And you do that by calling the variable without defining it in the component, calling the variable, providing a fallback, and never defining it. And then that works as an argument. So if you, sou- if you set that variable in the outer context, it will inherit into the component and be used. So it's a useful way to say, okay, I want to scope these styles, but I want to expose these three arguments. We're going to expose the header color, or we're going to expose you know, the padding of the card. We're going to expose that as an argument. So you can create cards with different padding. And rather than exposing that at the JavaScript or HTML layer, we're going to expose that directly in the CSS. So it's a fun use case for CSS variables to handle that. They also work across the shadow DOM. So I do that often with SVG images. Hmm. I'll have an SVG image that accepts certain variables, and then I can set those in the outer context. And it's, you know, the shadow DOM is there for the same reason scope styles are, to isolate something. And then variables let us cross over that isolation in very controlled ways. That's really cool. Have you done any work with CSS modules? I haven't yet, no. I've looked at it briefly and thought uh, that doesn't solve problems I'm having. (laughs) Fair (laughs) enough, fair enough. (laughs) I guess in your words, actually, I'd be curious, what do CSS modules solve versus the problems that you typically have? Well, in some ways, they're, they're similar to scoped styles. Am I right? They're another way of creating, of getting rid of the cascade, uh, the potential specificity issues working around that by providing specific scope to specific styles. Yeah. So, um, you know, like I said, that's something that we might use in very limited cases, but grabbing an entire CSS processor for it, aside from a framework that we're using like Vue, has never felt like I need that globally across everything. It's more like I want that in some very specific cases. And usually when I do, I'm using a component framework like Vue. Got it. Yeah, it, it it basically allows you to like take all of your class names and turn them into like generated class names with like a hash to guarantee that like that right. class can't interfere with another class because it's guaranteed to be unique. But and you can make it so that it's still readable, and you can right. like with the name of the component and then the name of the class and then a hash, uh, uh, sure. and then you can pass that to your JavaScript and you know, use that as the class name mm-hmm. or pass that to subcomponents. Uh, if yeah. it, it's like auto-generated components. BEM. Basically, yeah. That's yeah. that's a great explanation. Yeah, yeah basically. I, like BEM uh, you don't have to think about. I've been giving this workshop recently uh, where I cover sort of 
CSS systems, how we organize CSS, how we handle these problems of specificity, naming conventions, all that sort of thing. Uh, And I look back at two proposals from 2008-2009. One was object-oriented CSS by uh, Nicole Sullivan, and the other was CSS systems by Natalie Down. And I think everything that we do now comes from those two those two suggestions in 2008 and 2009, we're still doing the same things. Uh, and BEM is in some ways taking OSS or OOCSS. And she had a suggestion that class names should not be contextual. They should, we should, or like what an H2 looks like shouldn't change based on context. If we define it once, it should always look that way. Uh-huh. So we're not surprised. And I feel like systems like BEM, uh, sometimes SMACs, um, some of these other systems are sort of taking that one rule and adding bang important to it. Uh, <laughs> and like maybe if we just go all in on this one rule, we cannot think about anything else. And I, I don't know. I think it's excessive to mm-hmm. take yeah, that I, rule. And, and I definitely think so for both. Mm-hmm. But it's also a good baseline rule. Interesting. Yeah, if, if people were sort of allowing like all of their H2s to, or or overriding like their styles for H2s and like all these different contexts and not having any kind of like global context. I've, I've never seen a system like that. That's been maintainable. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, So the way that you can sort of make that maintainable and, uh, and consistent is by using something like CSS variables, custom properties Mm -hmm. to make it explicit. So a suggestion that I've seen is if it's going to change, make it a variable. And then you define the component in one place and you show there which variables are exposed. So you can still look at that one place and see how is this, how is this defined by default and also how does it have the potential to change in different locations. Um, so uh, I saw it referred to on a Smashing Magazine article as the keeping just above logic fold by documenting them in custom properties. And then you can make those changes and you also have it documented uh, what changes can be made. Changing topics slightly, uh, something I, I really like about your latest talk about like all of these CSS features that you can use to like build maintainable design systems. What would you say are the top three <laughs> like CSS features that are most underused by developers that could really make their life easier? Well, so it depends from when. I think we've had, say, we've had calc for quite a long time, and it's very powerful, and it's very well supported, and it's uh, very rarely used. Yeah. Yeah. And part of that is probably because it's more useful with variables, and variables are newer. Good point. Then again, I also think our industry tends to be very slow in picking up new things, we read once that it wasn't supported and we never checked back to see whether it was <laughs> <being> supported. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, variables right now are actually fairly broadly supported in most browsers. Grids also. We're yeah, in- isn't variables just basically IE? Yeah, I think both of them are basically IE at yeah. this point. And that's IE 11, which is officially dead, but never going to die. So mm-hmm. um, that's fun. But for both, there are ways to write fallbacks. And if we go back to that question, does it need to look the same in every browser? No, it doesn't. Uh, it never will look the same in every browser. 
CSS is built to be resilient and to provide fallbacks. And if we accept that, we can start using grids and variables quite well in production right now. And uh, they speed things up so much and mm-hmm. make it so much more maintainable that we have time left over to write the fallback. It sounds like you're a fan of graceful degradation. <laughs> I am a fan of that. <laughs> yeah, plus one from me too. So CSS variables in Calc are definitely up there. And grid. And grid. Um, and are, very are those, are those are three? Or you, can, you can cheat and you can add some more if you want. So with grid, I would say the, the fun thing that I've been learning over the last six months is the way that grid is part of a larger design system of distributing space and managing space. Flexbox was never intended to be released on its own. They were intended to be released together. They flesh out an entire system. They don't stand alone. So grid solves some problems where Flexbox solves a different problem. Uh, Grid is about this like top-down applying structure to a page. And Flexbox is, we have these different elements that are unknown sizes. Please lay them out in some sort of reasonable way without imposing something on them. Let's just, if we start imposing sizes on Flexbox, we probably should be using grid. And then thinking about basic flow is a layout system. This idea of inline and block and float that we've always thought of as like not a system, just a default. Uh, That is a layout system that's pretty smart. Things that are in the flow move in relation to each other in smart ways at this basic level. And we always default back to the flow. And that inline block float trio has some power to it for, uh, say, paragraphs and images and spans and bold and italic, right? It's pretty smart about how we lay out that sort of text flow. And now we're getting box alignment, which came along with Flexbox and Grid, but will eventually be added also to flow elements. And that's the ability to justify and align on each axis in different ways, in very controlled ways, which is something that people have complained about for years. Like, I can't vertically center. And now we can vertically center, uh, currently only with Flexbox and Grid, but coming soon to a browser near you. Hopefully, we'll get that applied to all the other layout systems. So all of these things were designed as specs to go together and to be used in unison. They make sense with writing modes, uh, the new proposals for logical properties, which move us away from top right, bottom left, and towards thinking about an inline axis and a block axis, and then the start and the end of each of those. You've seen some of that language coming into Grid and Flexbox, but that's ideally the way we're moving forward is removing concepts of left, right, top, bottom and replacing them with inline start, inline end, block start and block end. So all those pieces going together, I think is what's really exciting. This is, these are not thought of individually, but thought of as a full system. So would you say grid is more for like general layout of different areas and flex is more for like lists of things? Well, I would think of it less in terms of um, the specific use cases or the specific uh, content that it should be handling. Like it's not mm-hmm. that grids are big and flex box is small. It's that flex box is allowing items to 
declare their own size and figure out a reasonable layout with their siblings. Um, mm-hmm. So it's very, mm-hmm. it's very siblings working it out to mm-hmm. how are we going to fill up the space? And uh-huh. grids are, no, I have an imposed system and here is how the siblings, the, here's how the children should fit the system. Uh-huh. So Flexbox is really designed to not take explicit widths. When we start giving explicit widths to Flexbox, we're probably in grid territory. Because uh, what Flexbox is good at is not having explicit widths and just flexing around a bit. That's like a nice that. rule to remember. And also, I like turning flexing into a verb. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, this is, you know, so Jen Simmons has called this intrinsic web design, the, the new, what we're moving into now. So we had responsive web design in, I, when was that, 2009, uh, something like that. We got this idea of responsive and we started putting everything into percentages. And the idea behind intrinsic design is that we can move past forcing everything into percentages. The browser actually thinks of a percentage as just a pixel value that can change when you change the width of the screen. But it's just a pixel value. It's, it's static. It's set. It's not truly fluid in the way that the web is fluid. And Flexbox and Grid give us that true fluidity mm-hmm. where an item gets its width from its context and not just from its parent or from the window, um, but from how it, how it relates to siblings. They refer to that as like a flex factor. You know, something Ooh, is like that. a flex factor. So it can actually start with a percentage width and then it can flex from there to take up remaining space or to give up space if extra space is needed somewhere else. And that sort of true fluidity is a new thing that's going to change how we work. I think I need some laptops for flex factor. Are there still use cases? Sorry, go ahead, Ben. No, I was saying I need a laptop sticker that says flex factor. Yeah, Yeah, that'd be good. People might think you work out. (laughs) You flex. What's your flex factor? Three (laughs) hundred. So uh, (laughs) historically, like people have also used things like, you know, display for like, you know, display table to get like table-like layouts. And they've also used like float and uh, position, like absolute uh, static and stuff like that and, and, and relative. Are there still use cases for things like this? Or are, are these features where just like, if you're using that for some kind of layout, it's wrong? I would say floats, the use case for floats is the initial use case they were invented for, which is you want something to float. Uh, and you want content to flow around it. And that's why like CSS shapes, oh, that one is very underused. Um, And actually browser vendors are paying attention. There's a lot more power planned for CSS shapes, but until people start using them, we're not going to get the new power. People have to start using CSS shapes or we're never going to see where they could fully go. They're supported very broadly. Um, But they were built initially to work with floats because they deal with that concept of flowing content around something. So floats are useful for that. So for example, if you have like some kind of article and then you want an image to take up like half of that article space and the text to just sort of like flow around it to the right and then just underneath it. Exactly. Pull quotes, uh, images, things like that, that we want to sort of float in our text and maybe we pull them out a little bit to one side or another, but the text moves around them. Um, And that's a pretty cool feature but it's not how every layout should be. It's just 
a cool feature we can use sometimes. Mm -hmm. Display table, I have a little bit of a harder time seeing. The, the table display is really designed around what a table should do. Mm -hmm. And if we want what a table should do, we should probably use a table. I think the, the uh, last time I, I used that was designing HTML emails where awesome. sure. I, I think I think for some reason like that's still like the recommended way <laughs> because of just how emails work I guess uh-huh yep yeah so I don't see a lot of use for it but uh, there's no harm in using it it's not uh you're not hurting something by using display table so if, if someone tries to shame you you can just say like hey it works nothing's gonna break I heard from some students recently uh that their teacher had insisted that they never use floats ever for anything. Mm. Uh, and I sort of remembered back to the days when people started writing their tables with divs because they had heard so often that ta that tables shouldn't be used. And that's not right. <laughs> yeah, uh, It's just that we can start using these things for what they were intended for uh, and it, not as a hack for something else. Yeah, it reminds me of computer science students who are just like, you know, freshly graduated. And the one like programming rule they've, they've memorized is dry. Don't repeat yourself. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then they go to like horrific lengths to never repeat themselves. Right. Uh, even when they really should be. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Yeah. That's why I always say anytime I talk about don't repeat yourself, I add like also don't stretch for patterns. This yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And then what about like position? Yeah, um, position absolute is great when you need to take something out of the flow. Basically, things should be in the flow if they relate to siblings, and they should be out of the flow if they don't. So drop-down menus are usually out of the flow. Uh, they don't push anything around. Mm, they, they, um, they don't like affect anything else around right, them? Exactly. Yeah. Um, they just sort of lay on top. Um, and other things shouldn't so, affect them? Right. So modals uh, or dropdowns, tooltips, things like that, that don't affect the rest of the layout. Position absolute is perfect for that. Position relative, I don't have a use case <laughs> besides... Well, I guess um, you need that for the other part of the dropdown, right? Yeah. Right, exactly. Yeah. So position relative sets context. Otherwise, I'm usually the other problem that it can solve is now often better handled by translate, the transform translate. So relative has become this. I mean, maybe that's what it was intended for initially. I don't know. I think this is a relative of a positioning context. Maybe. I don't know. <laughs> I wasn't there. They didn't invite me to that meeting. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I've been following along on a lot of the like published transcripts from CSS working group meetings. It's a fire hose, but it's fun. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they, they worked out today that items without boxes should have a width of zero. I thought that was, you know, like, that's something that the browser implementers need to think through. Um, items without a, boxes. So uh, if you set something to display none or display contents, uh, it doesn't have a box. And so everything... Okay. Everything on the web is a box if it's visible. And if it's, if it's taken away, it doesn't have a box. And I don't have to think about that. But for browser developers, they needed to know what width is that box that it doesn't have. What is what the width, width of something without exists? a box? Yeah. So they determined today that it's a width of zero. Great. <laughs> just, just today, huh? Yeah. 
Well, but why does it you know, with those sorts of specs, they try to specify everything about how it could go wrong um, mm-hmm. at a level that, you know, the first few versions of CSS and HTML specs didn't have that level, and that's where we got all the interoperability problems. Um, mm-hmm. And it's great that they are now specifying to this level of detail exactly yeah, there, how a browser should break. There are probably bugs that it could create that I, I, I wouldn't even imagine. Yeah. yeah, but by making sure that Chrome and Firefox and Edge and Safari all agree on the width of no box, uh, yeah. we, uh, we get a lot of interoperability from specifying that level of detail, and it's pretty cool. Cool. Before we wrap up, Ben Hong, uh, is there anything, I don't know why I said your full name, <laughs> like there's another Ben here. Ben, are, are there any other questions that are on your mind? Oh man, I, I have a ton. Have one. I have a ton, but I think, I, I, think, I think she answered the key ones, more than the V ones. I'll have to talk to Miriam on another time, <laughs> another episode, another time. Then, then as, a, as a finale, I, I'm curious, what is your favorite CSS bug that you've encountered? Oh, uh... Jeez. I mean, so I found one yesterday, and I'm just going to call it well, my quirk. Maybe, maybe it's supposed to work that way, but yeah. <laughs> quirk. Quirk or bug, whatever. Yeah. I mean, what I, what I was playing with yesterday was, can you divide two values in a calc function and have, those, have the result used in an integer place? So like a CSS grid line requires an integer, not a float. Mm-hmm. Um, and it turns out that only Firefox can do this so far. Uh, the other browsers are working on it. Um, <laughs> but you can say the spec says that it should round to the nearest integer. So even if you do 5 divided by 3, you will get a resulting integer that you can use as a grid line or a z-index or a grid repeat value. Where an integer is required, you should be able to use calc and division. <laughs> I don't know if everybody's looking at this level of detail, but I wanted to know. And it is possible some places, not all places. Yeah. Where can people find you if they want to learn more about like, you know, design systems and like the actual like programming that's involved and like making all of this stuff work and making design like consistent and easy to manage and, you know, easier to communicate yeah, I'm on Twitter at Miri Suzanne, M I R I S U Z A N N E. And then the company is online at Oddbird. So those are both two things to follow on Twitter. Oddbird.net uh, has most of what I'm doing and links to articles I'm writing either there or on CSS Tricks or Smashing Magazine or wherever, wherever else I'm writing. It also has links to presentations and workshops. I have started giving this workshop. I would love to take it around more places if people are interested in sort of a full day or two days of advanced CSS that covers everything from uh, layout systems to custom properties, theming, and naming conventions and everything like that. Let me I think know. This is highly worth it, by the way. Uh, like if you if you haven't already seen. Miriam's talk at, at ViewConf US, which we'll watch, we'll, we'll drop a link to in the show notes. Uh, watch that and you'll realize that you didn't even know how much you didn't know that could make your life so much easier about CSS. <laughs> oh, that's like, great to hear. Thinking, like, oh, yeah, I think I probably know CSS pretty well, though. <laughs> no. I followed most of what she was saying. <laughs> <laughs> the first time I gave this workshop, I had somebody come up to me before I started and say, 
is this going to be advanced? And I was like, well, you know, I'll try to follow along with uh, how people in the class are doing and not get too far ahead. But yeah, we're going to cover a lot of a lot of ground. And he was like, well, I hope so, because I think I know everything. Oh, my God. <laughs> and, and I don't know if you can teach me anything. So you better. <laughs> and he came up to me halfway through and he was like, OK, we're way past what I knew. yeah but in an approachable way in an approachable way it's not like if you you don't already know everything about css you won't be able to follow along people kept nodding the whole way through so they seemed to follow along and contribute quite a bit cool and oddbird like what kind of stuff do you do what kind of uh what kind of consulting work do you do a lot of our work is custom applications from the ground up Um, So we'll help a client with every aspect of thinking through how, what application they need to solve the problem they're having, what stack we should build it in, and then we'll guide them through the entire process from start to finish through beta testing, uh, the whole thing. That's sort of our bread and butter. But then uh, we really enjoy also, we are very test-driven and documentation-driven and think a lot about architecture. So companies will also call us in just to help them refactor architecture for performance or for accessibility or for design systems. We'll come in and do short-term jobs and helping think through architecture, get tests in place, get documentation in place, things like that. Yeah. And I, I will say like a lot of people who do that kind of consulting, like only focus on like testing and some like very basic documentation and maybe like code comments and things like that. And like from what I've seen of your work, like you take a much more holistic approach where like everything is turned into like a maintainable system that they'll actually be able to use that will be like involved in their workflow and not just like documentation that they'll set up once and then they'll use again. Exactly. I mean, to us, it's all about like, can we develop processes and tools and systems that all integrate with each other and documentation becomes the easy option. As the humans as part of that system. Exactly. Right. We want to make sure. So, I mean, that that led to like when we were developing Herman, you know, the first client that we started developing it for, people asked me how we sell design systems to our clients. We don't. We just build them. We assume they're part of the system, like writing tests. You just do it because it makes the job easier, more fun. And three years later, when they call us back, it's there. (laughs) Uh, We have a system in place. Yeah. Um, So they need it. So we just build it. But the first client that we started building it for, they only got color palettes in the the generated system because we spent our time making sure that we had that right and that it was integrated and that it was going to be resilient and not fall apart uh, when we handed it off. And then the next one got colors and sizes. It was sort of like, we want to solve each of these problems right instead of shipping something fragile. And I think that's, you know, missing documentation is a problem. Incorrect documentation is actively harmful. So figuring out how to write documentation that stays up to date and fits the process uh, and doesn't get left behind is a big part of it. Yeah, that's great. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. This episode is brought to you by TripleByte. Applying to programming jobs sucks. You have to put the right keywords in your resume, you spend hours and hours on the phone screens and take home projects, and that's assuming the company even responds to your application. Well, if you're a software engineer, TripleByte can help. 
They work with over 400 top tech companies from big names like Dropbox and Adobe to exciting startups. You do one brief online interview with them. And if you do well, you go straight to final interviews with the company on their platform. It's like the common app for software developers. TripleByte does not look at your resume or where you went to school. All they care about is if you can code. I've helped dozens of software developers with various credentials get jobs. And this looks like a terrific way for you to get in and get interviewed and get a job without a lot of the hassle and overhead. You can go check them out at triplebyte.com slash react. That's triplebyte.com, byte as in eight bits. As a special offer for listeners of this show, if you take a job through Triplebyte, they'll offer you a $1,000 signing bonus. Let's move on to some picks. Ben, do you have your picks ready? Yeah, I'll start this week. Um, so I'm actually coming from you all uh, from Taipei, Taiwan. Um, so it's like 3.30 a.m. over here. So yeah, if you're ever looking for some good eats and a uh, good time, definitely recommend checking out Taipei. That's my phone for the week. All right. Miriam, oh, actually, I have one more question for you. Uh-huh. So your, your Twitter name, is, this is a question I already know the answer to, but it, your Twitter <laughs> name is Miri Suzanne. Does uh-huh. that mean we'll meet you in real life? They should just call you Miri? No, I don't actually like the name Miri. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I just wanted to make sure people know that. So like, you can just call her Miriam. <laughs> yeah, you can call me Miriam. I like Mia, but it wasn't available as a Twitter handle. I don't know. I should probably change it to Miriam Suzanne on Twitter, but I was trying to keep it short and it was the only thing yeah. available. And then it backfired and everybody and called you Miriam. It really backfired. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, nobody's perfect. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Okay. Do you have your picks? I can say, you know, my partner runs a theater company here in Denver and they're opening a show this weekend and I'm super excited for it. It's, um, it's called Something is Rotten and it's three incompetent roommates trying to put on a production of Hamlet and it sounds hilarious and I'm excited about it. So Bumpport Theater. Nice. Nice. I have not been doing anything really interesting lately, so I don't have any picks, uh, except I, I'm going to have one of my picks be uh, get some sleep even when you're traveling in like Taiwan. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I've just set up a new rule that I only do one conference a month that I have to travel for because back-to-back conferences on opposite coasts about killed me. <laughs> I still like to group them. I, I prefer to have like a big group of conferences uh-huh. that I'm gone for a long time for rather than having like <laughs> stuff every month going on. Oh yeah, no, I'd rather do one at a time and then get home and sleep in my own bed. Yeah, I just, I just don't like having to travel that much. Or travel, I, I guess it's more, it feels like more work traveling when I'm doing it constantly. <laughs> and I, I don't think I have another pick. That's it. I'm sorry. I'm sorry I don't have any more picks today. <laughs> thank you, everyone, for joining us on Views on View. And thank you, Miriam, for joining us. Yeah, thank you. Until next week, enjoy the view. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more. <laughs>